This is the third day of this November 2020 five-day online session. And we will resume reading from the anthology from uh, the last couple days. Um, this is a collection of teachings by uh, Chan Masters, Chinese Zen Masters, a book called Zen Essence, translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. Yesterday, we were reading from the great Da Wei. Uh, by the way, Da Wei is spelled D-A-H-U-I, D-A-H-U-I, and uh, in, in China it's pronounced Da Wei, not Da Wei, Da Wei. I learned that after about 20 years of pronouncing it wrong. He's a um, primarily 12th, 12th century Chinese master. He says, when you have no mind, Zen is easy to find. Actually, that's not him. He's quoting another master, apparently, because there are quotation marks uh, around it, although no attribution. When you have no mind, Zen is easy to find. And then he comments, in Zen terminology, no-mindedness does not mean insensitivity or ignorance. It means that the mind is stable and does not get stirred up by the situations and circumstances one encounters. It means the mind does not grasp anything. It is clear in all situations, unimpeded and undefiled, not dwelling on anything, even non-defilement. It's quite a mouthful there, a lot, a lot in there. This, this phrase, unimpeded. Uh, the impediments come from thoughts, or rather from our trafficking in thoughts. Thoughts will always be arising in the mind. Don't make a problem out of that. The problem where we get impeded is our chewing on the thoughts. It's a strong, strong habit. Uh, that takes, for most of us, a long time uh, to break. Before we, we, we eventually realize that uh, when doing Zazen, there's nothing for us in our thoughts. No matter the nature of the thought, no matter how lofty and pure and bodhisattva the thoughts, they're thoughts. And uh, that's not our business in Zazen. In Zen, it's very, it's uncompromising. Uh, there are meditation traditions, even Buddhist meditation traditions, where they talk about bringing forth uh, an intention or... Um, uh, bringing forth bodhicitta means the thought of enlightenment. Uh, the great Chan master Yunmen, Umon, uh, in one of the koans, he says, even a precious thing is not as good as nothing. 
does that sound bleak? If that sounds bleak to you, nothing, uh, nothing, then you got the wrong nothing. This realm of no thought, that's what nothing really means in this context. This realm of no thought is a vibrant, wonderful, exciting, pure state or no state. If it's, if it's a state of no thought or no attachment, that's another word for it, then you can't even call it a state. People can have a fleeting moment of no thought. Just a fleeting moment. Three seconds. Even one second. People have described one second where they where they had, had no no thought in the mind. They were they were absolutely free. And it was enough to bring them back to the mat for years to try to re-experience that. The mistake that too many of us have made is sitting and trying to retrieve that experience. It's a mistake because it's impossible. How can you retrieve an experience, a living, present experience? But luckily, we don't have to retrieve such an experience because it's always within our reach if we're not trying to retrieve the experience. In almost all cases, maybe all cases, who knows, we, we have that kind of experience because we are earnestly working the practice we're, we're, we're doing, the breath or the koan. So that's, that's our avenue to re-experience, to, to, to access uh, that realm again. Not wishing we could get, get, go back and lasso that, that old experience and get it back with us. It's impossible. But luckily, we don't need to because it's always right here. But just to repeat this, because this is a, a pretty loaded uh, paragraph here by this, by Dawei. He's saying that what we, in Zen, what we call no-mindedness, it really means no thought. It doesn't mean insensitivity or ignorance. It doesn't mean mindless. It means that the mind is stable. It's at rest and does not get agitated by all of the swirling circumstances one might find oneself in. He says it means the mind does not grasp anything. That's a that's a uh, exceptional 
state of, uh, to be non-grasping. It is clear in all situations, unimpeded. Un, unimpeded by the manacles of thought, undefiled, not dwelling on anything, he says, not attached to anything. He says, not even a state of non-defilement, trying to be non-defiled is itself an attachment. By the way, I meant to say at the beginning uh, that uh, I learned too late yesterday that there was a lot of uh, scrappy noise uh, that came through on the uh, st audio streaming yesterday. Uh, seems to have been caused by, uh, let's say, contact uh, between the device and uh, some scraps of paper I had. But uh, I'm counting on hearing from someone uh, this morning if it repeats itself. We've uh, we've rearranged the device, the iPad that's next to me here. And by the way, this is the first. Yesterday was the first Taisho where we've used an iPad uh, rather than uh, this other an iPod attached to the recorder. But I haven't heard anyone bust in yet and, and tell me about all this all this noise so I'm counting on the fact that it's all coming through now loud and clear the next passage by Dawei good and bad come from your own mind just that just that statement is a profound statement. He says, but what do you call your own mind apart from your actions and thoughts? Where does your own mind come from? If you really know where your own mind comes from, boundless obstacles caused by your own actions will be cleared all at once. After that, all sorts of extraordinary possibilities will come to you without your seeking them. Well, that's the key, without seeking them. The seeking is itself kind of blocks the full receptivity of insights. Now seeking, seeking is not the same as questioning. Not at all. Seeking 
at least in this context, I say seeking is is um, more like grasping. Uh, it's 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 sort of presupposes a goal, something you're putting your sights on and trying to get to. And you can see why that would be uh, an encumbrance. It's when we give up grasping, we give up goals, holding goals in the mind, that we open up. This is a can be a, a troublesome uh, area for, especially for beginners, who might say, uh, "What about the four vows? Um, aren't those goals?" Yeah, in a way, but not not goals, not things that we want to hold in our mind as we're doing zazen. We recite the four vows uh, twice a day in, in, in Sashin. We recite those four vows as a reminder of our intention. It doesn't take long. What does it take? Two minutes, a minute and a half? But if we take these, we recite these vows no-mindedly, but we're present. We're not just mumbling uh, something that we learned a long time ago, and we're just going through the motions. But if we're if we're really alert and aware when we're reciting these vows, then they really can set our intention in the most wholesome, uh, most fruitful kind of way in, in our practice. Skipping uh, three or four passages here. Oh, here's a short one, again by Dawei. Many people who practice Zen are in a burning rush to learn Zen when their worldly affairs are not to their satisfaction, but then give up Zen when they become successful in the world. That's That's the end of this one sentence passage and he's he's pointing out something that uh, <laughs> intuitively it doesn't take a lot of convincing that this is the way it is that uh, when we're when we're dissatisfied then we're going to want something more but then when we find uh, some kind of uh, resolution to whatever the dissatisfaction was, some kind of problem, then some people, not everyone, but, but some people will then lose their motivation to practice. 
says when they become successful in the world. He means uh, when such people uh, succeed at whatever whatever worldly um, desires they might have. Doesn't successful successful doesn't just mean um, affluent or it, it means getting what we want, and that I think the the, the what uh, comes to mind as always comes to mind when I read that is um, people who come to Zen with a broken heart. Someone has left them or divorced them, or not doesn't have to be one way or the other. Just after a divorce or during a divorce after a breakup then one is is left floundering and one is left searching what 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 else is there it's very it's a very promising state when one is laid low Now, one is in a, in a position to discover a new way. What does happen sometimes, though, is that uh, after a while, one practices, comes to some sittings, maybe even a sashin, and then person finds a new partner. And that's that's when that's when the aspiration for practice reaches the nadir, a low point, when you're in thrall uh, with a new person, a new romance. Boy, it is the chances that you're going to be serious about daily practice or awakening to your true nature. They plummet. There, there are physiological reasons for that. There's a kind of intoxication uh, to one degree or another. I've read in the first uh, year of uh, a romance, uh, one's, uh, one's biochemistry is... Uh, all wound up. Uh, well, I don't have to <laughs> go into that anymore. Most people know what that that's like. Uh, it's so poignant. It really is. Uh, to see someone who comes to this practice, the Dharma, and has found, has found a way that is, that will, that will offers a way to transcend gain and loss, whether it's romance or money or jobs or anything else, a way to transcend the whole matter of a gaining or acquiring or losing. And then that 
that opening, uh, that even that void uh, gets filled with another person or another this or another that job. But uh, the the seeming um, fullness, the fullness, the feeling of fullness that comes from, say, a new a new partnership or change in circumstances, a new uh, f- fortunate circumstances. It's guess what? It's temporary. I don't mean that you can't have a relationship, a marriage or partnership for the rest of your life that is enormously fulfilling. But that, that initial phase of uh, intoxication, that passes, of course. And then you don't have to suffer so much loss again in order to uh, renew your aspiration can also be a health crisis. I once, uh, I once uh, went to the local hospital and visited a Sangha member who had suffered a, uh, I can't remember, or it was at least 15 years ago, suffered a uh, brain aneurysm maybe, or they, th- they thought maybe it was a brain tumor. And standing there at his bed, talking with him, his eyes were wide and bright as he said, Boy, if I can make it out of here, if I can recover, I will never take this practice for granted again. Well, he did recover. But we still hardly saw him again after that and he he died uh, just a couple years after that so close yet near miss it is uh it is really quite a remarkable remarkable karma to come to this practice and to and to undertake serious practice when you're not on the ropes when you're not in a foxhole but you you have the insight you have the vision to realize that the only the only intelligent thing since there will always be losses in our life there will always be losses Every wonderful thing that happens is temporary. Uh, to have the, the perspicacity or the spiritual discernment uh, to know that this has to be one's... One, you have to commit to this path. Can't just be a fair-weather friend to the... To this this practice, but it's not it's not that common. I guess those of us who stick with it for a long, long time, 
uh, our, our, the dissatisfaction that keeps us in the game, the dissatisfaction is in spite of whatever uh, satisfactions or success uh, we may have found in life. Again, because we can see beyond those satisfactions and successes. At, at best, we can look ahead and see that we're going to die someday and be separated from all of the people who are dearest to us. It's only a matter of time. That's why Zen Master Dogen and other many other masters emphasize over and over again the, this matter of impermanence. One of my favorite of, of, of the many, many <laughs> quotations that I, I know that I'm attached to. Uh, I think one of the most most far-reaching and ones is uh, from Zen Master Dogen, who said, "If you would practice the Dharma, you must deeply, deeply see the passing nature of things." and have faith in karma. The next uh, passage, speaking of passages, the next one from Da Wei he says, uh, when you have attained mental and physical peace and quiet, don't get stuck in peace and quiet. Be independent and free, like a gourd rolling and bobbing on a river. Don't get stuck in peace and quiet. This is a, a common beginner's mistake. Uh, I remember... Uh, some of my fellow fellow members of the Ann Arbor affiliate group, uh, when I was just getting started in my practice, who even to me at the time could see that they seemed their goal seemed to be to, to act as calm and quiet as they could, and they probably saw the same in me. Such a misunderstanding. Of, of what we're doing here in Zen practice. So it's so, what, what, what we can find in practice is so far beyond just peace and quiet. And that's what Da Wei is talking about here. Be independent and free. And then this, this wonderful image, like a gourd rolling and bobbing on a river. That kind of freedom What, what what you can expect to see in someone who has gone very far in Zen practice is not just calmness. That's just the beginning. What you what you will see is um, a state of non-abiding, non-abiding, non non-attachment to any states. 
there's a there's a there's a, a sparkling um, fluid um, vital quality um, where the person just moves well we say like like clouds and water again the fluidity um, and and the and surely uh, no self-conscious effort to be calm or zen-like or anything just dancing uh, with circumstances as they change like a leaf blown blown around in the wind when we uh, first find our way into a state of of real stillness, great state of rest in our zazen, it can be so tempting uh, to want to just stay there or cling cling to it. It's... uh, it's it's we fall under under this quietness it's, it's like falling under a spell and for most of us maybe all of us it's just something we have to learn we have to go through it and see that there's nothing we can hold on to Here's a related one. It's uh, about three passages later. He says, If you have been practicing quiet meditation, but your mind is still not calm and free when in the midst of activity, this means you haven't been empowered by your quiet meditation. If you have been practicing quietude just to get rid of agitation, then when you are in the midst of agitation, the agitation will disturb your mind just as if you had never done any quiet meditation. So that's the test, is to see um, how composed you can remain in turmoil, circumstances of commotion. If you lose it in such circumstances, then the sitting has not been as effective as it could be, as it will be. There's no final judgments on our, the quality of our meditation. If we just stick with it, then we will get better and better at it, which which will show when we get up off the mat and engage with others in this regular worldly activities. That's when we'll notice that we're sort of bringing with us this mind of stabilized awareness. Here's the next one. People are backwards. Ignorant of the true self, they pursue things. 
willingly suffering immeasurable pains in their greed for a little bit of pleasure. In the mornings, before they've opened their eyes and gotten out of bed, when they're still only half awake, their minds are already flying about in confusion, flowing along with random thoughts. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It does to me. Although good and bad deeds have not yet appeared, heaven and hell are already formed in their hearts before they even get out of bed. By the time they go into action, the seeds of heaven and hell are already implanted in their minds. The Buddha said, All faculties of sense are receptacles manifested by your own mind. Physical bodies, our bodies, are manifestations of your own mind's representations of forms as subjectively imagined. That's quite a sentence. But let's, let's go on. We can come back to it. These manifestations are like the flow of a river, like seeds, like a lamp, like wind, passing away from instant to instant. Frenetic activity, attraction to impure things, and voracity are the causes of the useless, deceptive habits that seem to have always existed like a water wheel always turning. Frenetic activity. It's so common, so widespread in our society. Attraction to impure things, oh, impure things, however you take that, uh, have never been more available to us Voracity, meaning craving, I guess, craving or desire. These things are the causes of the useless, deceptive habits that seem to have existed like a water wheel, always turning. It's like a, it's a, a great uh, metaphor for the this world of sams, the wheel of samsara. This just to pick up uh, with that one sentence, physical bodies are manifestations of, here's how I would put it, less, uh, less sophisticated way. Our, Our bodies you can think of the body as a condensation of energy. Uh, energy, which we can also call karma. We are the effect in our body-mind, not just mind, in our body. Uh, this is, this is the, the effect of everything we have thought and said and done cumulatively for lifetimes. We have earned this body. 
in a way, earn is a good word when you think of the the great fortune of having acquired a human body, which they say is the only only state from which uh, to um, to find the Dharma from the human body. So we've earned it from our good karma. We've we've landed in this human body where we have the opportunity to practice the Dharma. But whatever whatever troubles our bodies give us, um, this too is, according to the law of cause and effect, this is not just a random thing. And our aches and pains and our illnesses and weaknesses and all, this too is uh, the the final, so far final, the final uh, effects of uh, body, speech, and mind. It's think of the body as the um, concretization of mind, the concrete manifestation of mind. And yet there's nothing fixed about either body or mind. This is all flux. Like seeds, like a river, the flow of a river, like wind passing away from instant to instant. Just as we have this marvelous ability to reform the mind. That's the whole point of spiritual practice. We're reshaping our, our habitual reactions to people and things. We also have this ability to some degree to reform, reshape the body, to heal the body through diet and exercise and other ways. Really, it never really makes sense to talk about just the mind or just the body. This is one one reality, the mind-body. And the body isn't only in a very limited sense can we say it's my body. It has its own laws, after all, doesn't it? We don't sit in um, some position of control where we're, we're controlling the flow of our blood, the breath. Those things operate on their own. What, what, what is that? What is that? intelligence that makes all of these incredibly sophisticated sensitive systems of our body go on functioning more or less successfully day after day year after year what is that what is this who am I?
really. The body is so much more than the body. Buddha once said this about the body, I declare to you that in this very body, though only six feet in length, but conscious and endowed with mind, are the world and the origin of the world and the ceasing of the world, and likewise the way that leadeth to the ceasing thereof. microcosm Dawei continues if you really see through this that that is this this all these this flow of useless deceptive habits and so forth if you really see through this you know that heaven and hell are nowhere else but in the heart of the half-awake individual about to get out of bed. They do not come from outside. Our experience of the world is determined primarily by the mind. Or, say, the mind-body. And he offers real good practical advice to his monks. While in the process of waking up, you should really pay attention. While you are paying attention, you should not make any effort to struggle with whatever is going on in your mind. While struggling, you waste energy. As the third ancestor of Zen said, and this is from Affirming Faith in Mind, Attempts to stop activity will fill you with activity. This is a fundamental point. You should not make any effort to struggle with whatever is going on in your mind. Fundamental. In Zen, we're not trying to stop our thoughts. We're not trying to manipulate our thoughts, expel our thoughts. We're primarily, we're just looking. Looking, and when we notice that the mind has been, has wandered, has been snagged by thoughts, just return it to whatever practice we're working on. We're not trying to do anything with the thoughts. Let them be. Let them be. It's all a question of where your attention is directed. If you can keep them off the thoughts, after noticing the thoughts, if you can keep them, get them back to this realm of no mind, which is either in the form of breath or koan or shikantaza, then that's it. Don't try to do anything with the thoughts. It's not our, it's not our work in Zen.
And then he finally says, when you notice that you are saving energy in the midst of the mundane stress of daily affairs, this is where you gain energy. This is where you attain Buddhahood, enlightenment. This is where you turn hell into heaven. Remember that phrase? Well, we looked at a footnote um, a couple days ago, saving energy. It means uh, resting, just to paraphrase, means resting in no thought. Dwelling in no thought. And that, that means dwelling in the breath practice or dwelling in koan or shikantaza. And this is where uh, we, we liberate our, our, our innate energy. It's a very short one from Dawei. When you have even a single thought of looking for a shortcut in Zen, you've already stuck your head in a bowl of glue. That doesn't sound very appealing. It's such a basic admonition that uh, everyone can take to the bank is is as long as we're thinking about time, how long will this take me? How long do I have to wait? Anything like that, that, that itself is what's, that handicaps us. I think anyone who hears this can appreciate the truth of it, can understand it, but, uh, so many of us just we want this fast we want relief we want attainment we want freedom and we want it now so so put that put that seriousness of purpose or even call it urgency put that urgency if you're working on a koan put it into questioning real questioning not thinking about time. That's something else. When you're questioning, or th to the degree that you're questioning sincerely, you won't have any thoughts about time. And that's what time is, after all. It's thoughts. Put everything into the questioning. If, or if your practice is breath, same thing. Just put it into the breath. And when you are, when you reach a state of deep absorption of the breath, you're beyond time won't have any concerns about time because you're there. And then here, he says a little bit more. He says he quotes the Buddha, or not quotes him, but he he says this. Buddha said that when the mind does not grasp things of the past, does not long for things of the future, and does not dwell on things of the present, so neither past, future, or present, 
then one realizes that past, present, and future are empty. Don't think about past events, whether good or bad, for if you think about them, this impedes the way. Don't calculate future matters, for if you calculate, you go mad. I don't know about mad. I wonder about that translation. But don't waste your time fretting about the future, rehearsing future things in your mind. That is a kind of a madness, I guess. Don't fix your attention on present affairs. Don't get, don't get caught in things that are happening now, whether unpleasant or pleasant. For if you fix your mind on them, they will disturb your mind. All right, our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows.